The Gospel reading today is from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning and welcome again, everyone. Uh, We're going through a a series on the parables and sort of going at a a leisurely pace. And um, this morning, we're going to look at more along the lines of the shepherd part of the parable and the the personal aspect of what Jesus is trying to tell us. And then next week, we're going to focus a little bit more on the woman and the coin and talk a little bit about what this means for us as a community. And so, let me pray for us as we begin to engage this text. Father, as we come to this time and as we think about what is going on, I think about the fact that no one in here needs to hear my words and my reflections, as coherent as they may be, probably not, as full of truth as they hopefully are. Lord, we don't need to hear just more truth. We don't need to receive just more information. We probably have enough already. We probably aren't applying what we know about you and your Bible already. Father, we need to hear from you, and we need to sense your goodness, and we need to get an impression of your posture towards us, that you are good, and that you love your people, and that you love humanity. Many of us here are laboring under false notions of who you are, that we've been told that to follow you rightly means not just to be in awe of you, but to be scared of you. We've been given ways of reading the Bible that don't leave much room for ambiguity or doubt or mystery, and we've been told that to disbelieve or negotiate on one part, that the whole thing has to come crumbling down. We've been told oppressive visions of you, and many of us here are perhaps wrestling with our relationship with the church. We have walked away and are now just here by circumstance. We're considering walking away because we can't envision anything but an angry church that serves an angry God. Would you meet us 
in our doubts? Would you meet us in our skepticism? Would you let us see in this parable the beautiful notion that you come to us in healing, that you come to us and extend welcome, that you come to us in humility, and you invite us to find you in all of our questions and our doubts and the mysteries of this world. And Father, help us to walk together toward you, to walk together as a church that we call in town and to also invite those who are here, perhaps looking in from the outside and looking for answers. We pray that they would be found. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably heard me quote or refer to Walker Percy a number of times from the pulpit. He was an American author from the South who died in 1990, and he was trained as a medical doctor. And early on in his practice, he actually contracted tuberculosis from one of his patients, and he had to go into an extended convalescence to heal. And during that time, even though trained as a scientist, as a medical doctor, he began to question whether or not science could fully answer the needs of humanity, could fully address all of the longings and all of the things that we want out of life. He began to ask whether science could address fully the human dilemma. And he began to dig further and further into his faith and to write books, fiction, and nonfiction. And one of the underlying themes that come out as you read him that is that one of the fundamental experiences of human life that he dials into is a self-conscious awkwardness of somehow not fitting in fully into the universe that we inhabit. And one of his later books was called Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book. And it was sort of a parody of this self-therapy movement that you can go to any bookstore and find rows and rows of self-help books. But even in its title that he's revealing his assessment of humanity, that the reason that we feel awkward, the reason that we feel this deep unquiet, that we oscillate between anxiety and arrogance, between boredom and manic obsession, is that we're lost, that we're unable to fully settle our anxious hearts that we lack the capacity of solving human suffering, that we're inadequate to grasp and to fully hold on to joy, a deep resonance with other people and fulfillment. But he also dials into, and I think Jesus, of course, does here too, is that the good news is that the gospel is for lost people, for people who feel that they're lost in the cosmos. The point of these parables is about God's determination to find us, to move before we move, to take the initiation, to make lostness the only path to finding God. And in the shepherd and in the woman, which we'll look at more next week, who are stand-ins for God in these parables, we see His single-minded, gratuitous love for lost people, for people who are looking for answers, who people, people who know that they don't have it altogether. And he drops everything for those kinds of people, and he goes after them. He comes after us. We typically think, don't we, that Jesus is the 
answer to our search. I've prayed, I've quested, I've read, I've investigated, but the parables invert this altogether. It's, in fact, God who quests after us, God who pursues us, that He's on a mission to find us. Now, chapter 15 comes after, of course, chapter 14. Hope you're paying attention here. Jesus has begun His journey in chapter 14 to Jerusalem, to the cross, and as He travels, these crowds gather around Him, large crowds. And Jesus is this very pious, morally blameless, religious person, and He had this uncanny way of attracting all of the people who weren't those things, all of the people that you wouldn't expect to gather around a religious rabbi. They were captivated by Him. The tax collectors and sinners, which is shorthand for all these kinds of people, flock to Him. They are the worst in society, the foreigners, immoral women, untouchables, outcasts. They not only come to Him, but He goes to them. He goes to their homes and to their places of business. He talks to them on the street. He embraces, you see, the very people that polite society wants nothing to do with. While those that share Jesus' lifestyle, those who pray, those who worship at the temple, those who fast, those who tithe, those who are honest, where are they? Where they're muttering, they're murmuring, they're whispering behind His back and pointing. How could He spend time with those kinds of people? How could He be in their homes having dinner with them? They're scandalized by Him. Jesus must have some secret sympathy for their lifestyle and for their sin. Doesn't Jesus care about law and sin? Doesn't Jesus care about what the Bible says about behavior? Doesn't He care about the authority of God's Word? How could He spend time? How could He welcome these people? Because not only does He allow these sinners to follow Him around, Jesus welcomes them. He eats with them. And eating together in the Gospels, this idea of table fellowship is not just grabbing a bite at McMinimum's. Something far more deep is being conveyed here. Table fellowship, Jesus sitting down and having a meal with someone is honoring them. It's accepting them. It's welcoming them. It's showing solidarity with them. And it's saying, you have a place in my kingdom. He's saying across the table, you have membership in my community. And the Pharisees aren't down with that. Not at all. Not only will they not eat with those people, but they condemn anyone who does. And so they condemn Jesus. But you see, what comes out in this parable is that Jesus knows something that they don't, or at least maybe they've suppressed, that there is more rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents than the 99 who don't need to repent. So place yourself on that spectrum. Place in town on that spectrum. What would that mean for us in the new year? Hold that in thought and keep that for next week. 
The 99, who are they? Well, they're the people that have done their duty. They're the faithful people. They're the ones that have already turned in their pledge cards and put a big amount on it. (laughs) They're the ones that when Messiah comes, He'll come to them because they've been faithful. Our religious tradition holds the truth. So obviously, God will come to us. But Jesus says His community is not built around the 99, it's built around the one. His community will mirror the heavenly community. It will embody the welcoming heart of God. Do you see the thing that the Pharisees complain about, he sees as cause for celebration. What they turn their nose up about, he says the angels rejoice over. And he uses this metaphor, this image, that everyone in that day would know of a sheep and a shepherd to get this home. You see, a sheep in the wilderness is as good as gone, as good as dead. Even if you find a sheep, if it wanders off and you go find it, it won't follow you home. It's not like our dog that is so happy when we find it, and it'll wag its tail and run behind us all the way home. A sheep won't do this. You have to carry a sheep back. You have to physically put it on your back and carry it home. Now, we, because we know that we're supposed to be the sheep in this parable, we like to imagine the the fluffy little adorable sheep, you know, of the Hallmark cards, maybe with a little bow tie on. And we, that's how we think of ourselves in this parable. Who wouldn't want to take that sheep home? But maybe Jesus has in mind not that fluffy little cute sheep, but maybe He has in mind the recalcitrant ram who's tired of the sheep pen business. I want to sow my wild oats. I want freedom. I want to get out of here. Maybe that's who Jesus is imagining, the one who has sought freedom but now is stuck and now is lost. Or maybe he's talking about the sheep that they found in Australia this week, and they don't know how long the sheep has been gone. He's probably five or six years old, but they don't know who he belonged to. But they find the sheep, and he's got 90 pounds of wool on him, enough for 30 sweaters. Now, he somehow survived, but he could barely move, so he just sort of stood there. A sheep, you see, doesn't stumble upon the truth. A sheep doesn't navigate by the stars to find their way home. A sheep must be rescued because a sheep just stands there until it gets eaten. It can't contribute anything at all to its salvation. Its only qualification for salvation is actually being lost. Now, the shepherd and the woman, they're the ones who do everything. We often hear this parable, and it's taught in terms of repentance because Luke uh, refers to repentance in this passage. But if you notice, the sheep and the coin, they don't do anything. They don't go and get lost and then repent, and so therefore Jesus comes and finds them. They don't do anything except get lost. In fact, it's the shepherd and the woman who actually claim responsibility for the sheep being lost. We've lost the sheep. I got to go find the sheep. So perhaps repentance is just a willingness to be found, 
It's a willingness to admit, hey, I'm lost. Can you help me? And what drives this passage, really, is God's passionate, some would say reckless, desire to restore that which is lost. You see, it's reckless for a shepherd to go after one and to leave 99 because now the 99 are in danger. They're now the lost ones, and a wolf can come in and eat them, but Jesus goes. This shepherd, this reckless shepherd goes to find this one sheep. It seems crazy, but what Jesus is saying to all of us here is that if you're lost, I'll come look for you. If you're lost, it's not something to be ashamed of. It's something to enter into and to embody. Therefore, I can come and meet you. The problem, of course, is that we hate to be lost. We hate to see ourselves as lost. We hate to be dependent upon someone else. The man who won't stop and ask for directions is sort of a metaphor for the human condition, right? We don't like asking for directions. We spend our lives trying to figure it out for ourselves, trying to be self-sufficient, trying to commend ourselves to other people. And this doesn't just automatically stop when we come to God. We want to commend ourselves to Him too. We all have a list of things that we use to say, I'm okay because... I know I belong in this world because. I'm somebody because. Or as Rocky Balboa says, nobody's ever gone the distance with creed. And if I can go that distance and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. Rocky, you see, uses boxing to make himself something. Maybe we use money. Maybe we use gender. Maybe we use our sexuality. Maybe we use our theological tradition. Maybe we use our family name. But we're constantly commending ourselves. We're constantly measuring ourselves against these external standards. And we're creating a life standard, a life narrative by which we have meaning by which we tell ourselves that we're somebody, that we belong, that we're not lost in the cosmos. Maybe everyone else is, but I know where I'm going. In Christian language, we say that we're busy saving ourselves. We're busy constructing our own self-salvation. And if that's true, then it would mean that we're not only the sheep in this parable, but we probably need to see ourselves, at least imagine ourselves, as also the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Because they're the good people who don't know they're lost. And pews across America are filled with people who don't know they're lost. People who have it all together, at least according to the standards of their chosen community which are usually very narrow standards, right? They're very external. They're very superficial. They're not very deep, oftentimes very political. How you vote, who you vote for, what your platform is, that's 
your way of commending yourself. That's your way of narrating the world and narrating your place in it. We keep up these appearances, even while knowing at some level that our souls are depleted, even while knowing at some level that our souls are profoundly dislocated. And that's why we use those externals, because they're easier and they're shallower. Even while we know we are unhealthy, we keep that up. We keep those balls in the air. And I guess the question is, are you tired of doing that? Jesus came to those who were tired. Jesus came to those who didn't have those standards, who didn't have those balls in the air, who didn't have those cultural markers. They were nobodies. They were outcasts, really. And because of that, it was easier to see their way into the kingdom. It was easier to see how they could relate to a Savior of the outcast. Jesus is saying to those of us who have a sense that our souls are profoundly dislocated, it's okay. It's okay to be in that place if you recognize it. You weren't meant to do life. You weren't meant to find your way and navigate the cosmos on your own. You need a community, and you need Him. You need the great shepherd. Now, we should say, of course, that there's not anything wrong with being righteous, with pursuing those things that we believe that God is calling us to, working hard, doing our best, being a good neighbor, showing up for church on time, especially the last one. But ultimately, the question of how we're doing and how we're discharging our duties only sort of scratches the surface of who we are and what we need and what we're longing for out of this world. The church, of course, has to be a place that trains and affirms people to follow God, to fall in love with Him, and to love actively, intentionally, deliberately our neighbors. We have to be a place for those who are pursuing righteousness and justice, but we have to be a church for people who feel lost, who are ashamed of their sinfulness, who are broken, because really, if we think about it, those two people are the same people. No matter how hard we strive, no matter how much we long for righteousness and want to please God and follow what He wants… We are all broken and we're all sinful. Most of us are just waiting around for you to notice it (laughs) and to recognize it because we all have. And everyone notices about us. The church has to be that kind of place because the church invites, Jesus invites all of us to recognize our lostness and to be found to confide in Him all of our aspirations and all of our dreams and our hopes of the future as well as our fears about the future and our fears that He won't show up for us. And any time we turn toward Him, any time we admit that we are lost and we are broken, God throws a gigantic party. 
the angels in heaven rejoice over us, rejoice over that recognition. You see, ultimately, as we finish, this parable is about more than just sinner and righteous. It's more than just about lost and found. It's about a God who is so crazy in love with His children that He'll drop everything and pursue them. A God who is so madly in love with you that when you need Him, when you're lost, that's where He is found. That's the pathway. Jesus says that you're lost and you're dead and you're in the wilderness. You're the one out of the 99, but you're mine. And you've always been mine. And He says that He's never lost track of you. He always sees you. He always knows where you are. And nothing you've ever done, nothing that you are doing, and nothing that you have ever will do will ever make Him less willing to come after you, to lay down His life and sacrifice for you so that He can rescue you from your lostness. Friends, all of us, we're infinitely lost in the cosmos, but we're infinitely loved. And so I want you to remember that. Meditate upon that this week. Live out of that and share it with others, would you? Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would not be too quick to think of others as lost and ourselves as safe and found. Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves both in the sheep that is lost and is hurting and is alone and is shivering in fear, as well as the Pharisee who thumbs their nose at other people and who looks down at those people who are lost because we have found our way to you. Father, I pray that we would be careful to pay attention to what you were saying about us in this parable, both as individuals and as a church. And I pray that you would draw us wherever we are, whatever stage of spirituality we find ourselves in, I pray that we would connect that to you and you would connect it to us. And we pray that you, in Jesus' name, would come and meet us. Amen.